Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Sometimes, and I'm sure that if you have spent any time reading the Bible, you've noticed that sometimes it's not easy to understand. What is it trying to say? And so I love it when an author of the Bible just says, this is what we're saying. Look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke is just saying, Luke 18, verse 1, this is what Jesus is saying. Always pray, don't lose heart. Keep going. Don't give up. Keep going. Um, if you know one hymn from the great Christian tradition of hymns, and this is the case, I think, whether or not you've spent your entire life in the church or you just happened to come in here this morning and you're wondering, what am I doing in this building with all this stuff, people I don't know? It doesn't really matter. If you're a long, long time Christian or you really don't have any care for Christian faith, you know one hymn. And that hymn is Amazing Grace. We're going to sing it tomorrow, actually, at the funeral. Come and sing with us. The man who wrote Amazing Grace is a man named John Newton. Um, Newton became a Christian on March 10th in 1748. He was 23 years old. His mother had been a devout Christian, but she had died uh, early on in his life, and he was sent off to school, but just for two years. At the age of 11, uh, his father, who was a ship's captain, said, Son, you're coming with me. Get on board this ship. I'll teach you how to do this. And you may know, actually, the the stories of his sort of shipping life, his life as a captain are sort of famous. He had a crazy shipwreck. Uh, John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, captain a ship that was a slave trading ship, bringing people from West Africa and selling them. Um, John Newton was actually a slave himself for a little while to a woman in the Ghanaian coast there of West Africa. And he was saved uh, from his slavery one night. He saw a ship and he built a big fire on the beach and actually they sent a small boat to come and to check on what was going on with this fire. And he got in that boat with those men and he went out into that other ship another slave ship. The captain of that ship happened to be friends with John Newton's father, and they gave him a lift. What happened, though, was that a horrible, terrible storm hit them as they were crossing the Atlantic. And at least as it's described, the whole of the ship 
was starting to actually fill with water. And they wondered as you know, they were going into the troughs of the waves, whether or not the ship, the bow of the ship would ever come back up or if it would simply go down. And it was sort of in that midst, uh, supposedly Newton says that it was when he was actually helping get the water out of the hole as they were trying to carry buckets of water out so they didn't drown, that he said to the captain, as he passed him by, he says, if this will not do, all of this getting the water out, pumping the water out, the Lord have mercy upon us. And he hadn't thought of God or mercy or any of that for a long time. He lived however he wanted. He bought and sold people, all that kind of stuff. And his own words sort of astonished him. Mercy. Mercy. What mercy can there be for me? He said, this was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor as the storm subsided. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens. And this is wonderful. Which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. Um. So the first thing that Luke tells us in this passage in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, is that we ought always to pray. I wonder if you're like me and you've always thought like, how do I always pray? I'm supposed to pay my bills. I'm supposed to put food in my mouth and all that other stuff. Um, We just heard Jaden wonderfully read for us Ephesians 6. Pray at all times in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us that we should pray without ceasing. Um, And yet, if you know those books, if you know uh, the book of Ephesians, you know there's all kinds of other instructions about uh, family life and work life and all this other stuff. And the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, it talks about how Paul exhorted other people. And he also talks about the will of God, your sanctification is Um, to live quietly, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, these kinds of things. So what does it mean? This, like, you know, keep on praying. What is this? What's he saying? That we ought always to pray. What I want to suggest to you is sort of, I think, found clearly in this little parable, and that's that we are not to give up. Keep going. Keep going. Now why? why? Why should we keep going? Well, this is a very simple first point. Because the Lord does hear your prayer. Um, That seems very simple, but if you've prayed for a long time, that may not seem necessarily like it's the case. Listen to this story again, verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversaries. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to him, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continually coming. The words there are literally so that she won't give me a black eye. Just a great picture, this widow giving this judge a black eye. 
Now what the Lord here describes is not a theoretical situation, a theoretical problem. Um, it's, it's not just only a story that he's telling, some parable for his point. Um, his disciples would have absolutely been able to picture this very scenario that he talks about here. Because the truth is that they had likely seen it themselves. This kind of thing happened. The perversion of justice, by especially the taking of bribes and money, is actually something that is warned about all over the Old Testament. And why is it warned about all over the Old Testament? Because people do this all the time. They do not deal with what they should be dealing with. The care of the poor and the widow and the orphan and all this other stuff that the scriptures tell us to care about. But instead their own greed and taking bribes. And it's not just an Old Testament problem. Um, corrupt judges were common enough in the days of the New Testament that, in fact, we actually see this very warning all over Jewish literature at this time. The warning about corrupt judges. And of course, um, it's not just an Old Testament thing either, or a New Testament thing. This is a current day problem. Self-serving politicians. How much do you have to pay to get a lobbyist to maybe get an ear of somebody? How much money do they need? In it for themselves. Um, Alfred Edersheim, maybe you've heard of him, the great uh, Jewish convert to Christianity. He was um, born in Vienna became a Christian actually in Hungary, and then uh, moved to Scotland of all places because he had met um, Father Duncan, a great Scottish Presbyterian minister in Hungary who was a missionary there for a little while, moved to Scotland and became a Presbyterian minister, um, and then eventually actually an Anglican priest because he moved to England because of his health and then taught in Oxford, all this kind of stuff. But he wrote in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah that judges in the city of Jerusalem uh, were known by the people as robber judges. That was literally the title of a, a whole group of people. They were robber judges. They were just in it for themselves. What can you give me? Now a judge has your life in his hands, so a corrupt judge, of course, is a terrible thing. Here's a judge who we hear twice, neither fears God or respects men. He's, he's in it for himself. What's he going to get out of it? Of course, if you've read the Bible much, you know that the widow is the very person that the Bible tells us is often the most in need. The Bible seems to tell us again and again that we ought to care for the orphan and the widow. James, of course, tells us that that is what true religion is. Because she has nothing. In fact, uh, one commentator that I read said, the widow is essentially as good as dead. Uh, no means... No husband sort of to give her a societal standing at this time. Um, it would have been incredibly, incredibly rare for a widow to be wealthy enough to maybe pay somebody, to maybe pay the judge, to maybe hear her case. Um, many of you know this, but this was such a sort of patriarchal world at the time that essentially a woman without a man really didn't have any voice. Um, and I think actually an important side note um, is that it's actually, I wonder if you've, you've probably heard this passage, think of Galatians chapter 4 when it says that Jesus redeemed those who were under the law that they might receive adoption as sons. And I wonder if some of you are like, we should be saying sons and daughters. But that passage is actually all full of grace because he's saying you're going to get the inheritance too, all of you. 
you're going to be treated like the sons are treated now. Okay? Blah, blah, blah. That's a quick side note, but I think it's important to say. Those are totally radical statements at the time. Anyway, my point is this widow would have had no voice and absolutely no power. Unless she was incredibly wealthy, she would have been entirely dependent on the goodwill of others. Entirely so. So she comes to this judge that neither, uh, you know, doesn't care about God, doesn't care about other people. He's in it for himself, which likely means that the only way she's going to get a hearing is if she pays him, which she can't. Um, and she has one thing, really. She has her persistence, right? She just keeps going and going and going. She keeps going again, and he just says, Ah! I can't keep listening to this woman crying out, give me justice. She finally wears him down. Okay, there, is, uh, there was in the 19th century, again, an English uh, Anglican minister, a scholar by the name of H.B. Uh, Tristman. He was known, uh, he's, he's, he traveled extensively throughout the Holy Land and wrote a lot about it in the Middle East. And listen to this description. This is actually him entering into a Middle Eastern city in the um, 1880s or so. So not long ago, uh, 140, 150 years ago. Immediately on entering the gate of the city, on one side stood the prison, with its barred windows through which the prisoners thrust their arms and begged for alms. Opposite was a large open hall, the court of justice of the place. On a slightly raised dais, on, at the further end, sat the cadi or judge, half buried in cushions. Round him squatted various secretaries and other notables. The populace crowded into the rest of the hall, a dozen voices clamoring at once, each claiming that his cause should be the first heard. The more prudent litigants joined not in the fray, but held whispered communications with the secretaries. It totally reminds me of sitting and watching the deliberations of our own um, uh, Senate here in the, uh, Harrisburg. Everybody just whispering and talking, moving about. Uh, when the greed of the underlings was satisfied, one of them would whisper to the cadi. I feel like we should say, there's other words that we could say here for current things. Um, who would promptly call such and such a case. It seemed to be ordinarily taken for granted that judgment would go to the litigant who had bribed highest. But meantime, a poor woman on the skirts of the crowd perpetually interrupted the proceedings with loud cries for justice. She was sternly bidden to be silent and reproachfully told that she came there every day. And so I will, she cried out, till the cadi hears me. At length, at the end of, the, of a suit, the judge impatiently demanded, what does this woman want? Her story was soon told. Her only son had been taken for a soldier, and she was alone and could not till her piece of ground. Yet the tax collector had forced her to pay the tax, from which, he, from which, as a lone widow, she could be exempt. The judge asked a few questions and said, let her be exempt. Thus, her perseverance was rewarded. Had she had money to give a clerk, she might have been excused long before. That was written in 1894. Jesus is talking in oh, 32-ish. But we all know this is the same thing that's going on. A corrupt judge, a corrupt system, 
And it's something that has gone on throughout the world and throughout time. And it happens today. It happens in our cities and our states and all the rest. And we're all crying out, God, do something. Do something. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget us forever? But it's this woman's persistence that gives her the ear of the judge. She finally breaks him down. And Jesus' whole point is, this is an unrighteous judge. So verses 6 and 7, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry out to him day and night? If this is what an unjust, uh, just, unjust judge does, how much more your Father in heaven, who loves you, who cares for you, if an unjust judge will finally give in to a widow's pleas, how much more will God hear the cries of his people? Do not give up. Do not give up. The Lord hears your prayers. Now, the, the truth is that there's a temptation when we hear this parable and we hear just the phrase, the Lord hears your prayers. and He's going to answer because he loves us, which is all true. But there's a temptation for many of us to just think, I'll just keep asking God for whatever I want and eventually he'll give it to me. As if we are just as greedy as the judge. God, just come on. Give me all the stuff that I want. And there is a real perversion of Christianity that teaches that. If you just have faith, if you just have faith, God will give you anything. But that is absolutely not what's happening in this passage. This passage is about persistent prayer, yes. But this passage is about not giving up. And in the context, the greater context of Luke, what this passage is saying is wait, wait. Your God will come. Your waiting will not be in vain. You're crying for justice and your desire for the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven will be met. Those desires, those hopes are not in vain. God have mercy on us. Deliver us from this unjust world with such corruption and greed, hatred, and wrongdoing. God deliver us from our adversaries. Those cries, God will hear those. So second, pretty basic main point again, God is your hope. God is your hope. He hears your prayers and he is your hope. Um, so last week, think about this passage that we saw last week. Last week, chapter 17, it, be, it began, of course, with the Pharisees coming to Jesus and asking this question, hey, when will the kingdom of God come? And we talked about how we're all obsessed about time and when and God. Jesus never seems to be concerned with that question very much. Um, and then we heard about how his disciples seem to have that nagging question too, and he begins to talk to them. And he says, the days will come when you desire to see the Son of Man, and you will not see him. Now we talked about how there was, an, there was sort of an immediate fulfillment of that. The reality that Jesus is actually taken from them, and he's put up on a cross, and he's in the tomb. But there's also this, this story of the long history of the Christian church, where we long for God to come and to be present. 
persecuted church knows this far better than we do, but we all ache for the Son of God to be revealed, the Son of Man in this passage to be revealed, Jesus himself and his kingdom to come. We long for it. And what Jesus told us last week is that there's a temptation in this longing because the longing just seems to go on and go on and go on. And the temptation is to give in to all the pleasures of this world as if they were it. The pleasures of this world is all you're going to get, and so just take it. He talks about, of course, the days of Noah and the days in Sodom when people are eating and drinking and marrying and buying and selling and doing all this stuff, and they're just oblivious to God. You might as well take it while you can get it. Because after all, hey, life is so painful, and there's no end to this injustice. God's ear has not been bent towards us, and the temptation is to give in. That's the preceding passage. Of course, the end of the passage that we had read for us this morning in Luke says this. Using the same language, actually, for God, the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in you? Will you continue? When his people cry out to him to bring in his kingdom, to return to earth, to bring down the proud and the greedy and the self-serving, to vindicate those who have trusted in him. And when they see no sign of his answering, when it seems as though they keep coming and the judge has no ears for them, will they grow so discouraged that they will simply give up, lose heart? And that discouragement, will you cease crying out, cease praying? I mean, we may pray week in, week out here, thy kingdom come, but our desire for Christ's kingdom diminishes after the long time of waiting, wondering, God, do you hear at all? Are you the place of our hope? Second um, Peter 3.8, probably many of you know this, tells us, that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. So you could say, hey, we've only waited two days. But that's not your experience. It's not your experience. It may be a comfort to us that God's timing is absolutely perfect, and it is, and I absolutely believe that part of what Jesus is saying is when he is glorified and when his kingdom comes, we're going to think, 2,000 years was nothing compared to eternity. Nothing. But it's a long wait. It's a long time to wait for justice to be brought to the corrupt. For greed to be done away with. And our hatred of these things boils over. And our impatience seems to get the best of us. The Lord says he's coming quickly. But our experience, it seems so long. In two chapters, actually, we're going to hear Jesus tell another parable. It's of a, a landowner who goes off into a far country. And what we read there, and the landowner is, is the representative of God in the story. The landowner there is told to be gone for a long while. And the truth is that that story seems to meet our experiences a little bit more. What I'm saying is that the waiting can be very long. And yet, however long it is, what Jesus says is, I hear you and I am coming. 
Your waiting and your hope is not in vain. It is not in vain. Your cries for justice are not lost on me. The desires of your hearts, your hopes, they will be fully and finally met in me. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, teaches that, the Christian teaching teaches that your Christian life is actually determined by what happened long ago and will what happen in some day. Right? We look back on what God has done in Christ on the cross, and we say that shapes us for where we're going and living right now. But we also look forward and we say that event and our faith and our hope in that event shapes us entirely now as a people who live with hope in what God will do. God hears your prayers. God is your hope. I want to give you one final thought, and this might seem... I hope I can communicate this clearly enough. God can be your hope in this long waiting because of his humiliation. Now that may seem like all I can say is, hey, look at the cross. That's true, but let me kind of talk about this a little bit more. Uh, Jesus in his parables and in his teaching seems to have no problem comparing God to um, the grotesque. Um, the greedy, um, the no good folk. Have you thought about this? This is weird. Um, Jesus has no problem comparing God to a, an unjust judge or an unjust steward, a shrewd steward, or um, a father who humiliates himself and runs to this son that says, I wish you were dead and goes off and lives however he wants. Y'all have heard that story so much that you don't get the scandal of it, but it's totally scandalous. And Jesus doesn't have a, a lot of problems saying, this is like, there's similarities to God here. Um, you might not know this, but no other religion talks about their God that way. Nobody else talks. I mean, it's crazy talk. Um, Archbishop Trent, Trench, who was an Irish um, archbishop in the Anglican church, in the Irish church, not the um, Catholic Irish Church, but the Church of Ireland. He was also a poet. Maybe some of you know his, his poems. He said, none might have ventured on this comparison between God and an unjust judge. It would have been over, overly bold on the lips of any save the Son of God. But Jesus seems to have no problem doing that. Um, Robert Farrar Capon he says this, never having been to theological seminary, Jesus was blessedly free of the professional theologian's fear of using bad people as an illustration of the goodness of God. Now, um, some of you, I know, uh, are into how arguments are made, what kind of argument is being made here. This uh, parable is an argument of a minore ad meus which means from the lesser to the greater, right? So it's not just saying, hey, these are equal. An unjust judge and Jesus, that's not the point at all, right? The point is, if an unjust judge will even give in to such persistence, how much more will God reward those who are faithful in the long haul? But in a sense, Jesus is saying, God's like an unjust judge. 
And this judge doesn't respect God and or fear God and doesn't respect man. Um, now Jesus, of course, in some ways, you know, you, we say that's completely crazy. Jesus fears God. He loves man. He's given for the blessing of the world. But Jesus is not like any other religion. And the Christian faith really isn't like any other religion. Um, here's the thing. Jesus seems to not really care much about what you do. I mean, Christian religion is all about grace. It's literally like, you can't do anything. You've got to come empty-handed. And the, no other religion teaches that. You know, hey, look at the sacrifices I did. Can you please give me rain now? That's most religions. They're about what you, you can do, what good you can do, what sacrifice you can give, and all of that. And of course, this is actually how most humans interact with one another, right? Oh, okay, I'll talk to you because actually you can maybe give me something. Yeah, yeah, you come and sit up here in the front. Right? All the things that Jesus warns us against. It's about what we're doing, and this is how we interact. This is how we think religion so often interacts. But of course, God, Jesus is not a God like any other God, and he doesn't act like we think God should often act. He doesn't act how humans act. He doesn't keep time like we do. We've already talked about. He doesn't bring justice like we want him to or think he often should. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you really think Jeffrey Dahmer should be in the kingdom of heaven? I, pretty much none of you really do. And certainly nobody outside of the Christian faith thinks he should. He was a mass murderer, pedophile, a cannibal. How many of you really think that John Newton should be in the kingdom of heaven? Oh, he did, he did write a really good hymn that we all love singing. But he was a slave trader. God in Christ is not like any religion. It's scandalous. It's sort of a grotesque kind of grace, right? That really actually makes us all go, what's happening? What's wrong here? Most religions are about what you do. And almost all people interact with others based on how they act with them. God is about is a massive, lavish grace. So why do we keep going? Why don't we give up and give in? Of course, right, because God hears our prayers. He really does. He really is our hope. But ultimately because we actually worship a God who actually enters into humiliation. God has secured our future because, precisely because he doesn't act like other gods. Precisely because he doesn't act like humans normally interact. If he did that, your future would be doomed. Entirely doomed. God is willing to be perceived as the bad guy. The bad judge. The bad, bad landowner. The crazy dad. Because he actually was willing to be the one who hangs on the cross. Right? He's willing to actually say, yeah, let it all fall on me. I'll take it all. 
here's what I'm suggesting to you. In some ways, only a bad judge does what God does. But the good news, the good news is that in Jesus' humiliation on the cross, he pays the penalty of our sin. He carries our sin and puts it to death. And because he has done that, the Father, the great judge, says, you're free. No matter what you've done, my grace is for you. And I'll look on Jesus instead of you. And we all say, actually most of you all say, nobody should do that. There shouldn't be grace for Jeffrey Dahmer, for John Newton. And if you know your sin, actually there shouldn't be grace for you. But that's actually the whole point. It's all the grace of God. It's precisely because Jesus is willing to be humiliated. That the Father can welcome us home. And in some ways we could say this unjust judge will declare us righteous because of what Jesus did and not what we did. It's because of his humiliation that we're justified by faith and not by works. And none of us can boast. It's because of Christ's humiliation really, that you have any hope, but also that your future is absolutely secure. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that in, in, in an odd way, that the very scandal of the gospel would be the thing that we find most lovely and beautiful. And because that, the beauty that really is about us in the world, will not be the thing that we find so attractive, but that we will long to be with you. Our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, that we will cry out night and day, like this persistent widow, God, give us justice. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Maranatha, Lord, come back. bless you for the cross and the resurrection that secures our hope in your promised return. God, make us to be people that live in this already not yet time. This time between the cross and glory. I pray that these two greatest events of history will shape our lives right now, Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.